From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrano. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home. Long haul truck, RV, camper, taxi. Your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. And hello to all of you catching The Conspiracy Show on one of our affiliate stations across North America. Those of you who take the show with you on your mobile device with the Conspiracy Show app. And of course, those of you watching the live YouTube stream, please visit the YouTube channel and hit the sub button if you would. However and wherever you're listening and watching, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes and I thank you for your fine company. Jason Louvre is standing by with a fascinating history of Dr. John D. Queen Elizabeth I's court advisor and astrologer who also worked out a mathematical formula for communicating with angels. Uh, we'll look into that in just a moment. Hey, have you checked out my new podcasts yet? Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited drops three days a week, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. You can subscribe at conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. Conspiracy Unlimited podcast.com and if you like poking around in the uh, the strange corners of rock and roll i think you're going to enjoy the rock and roll twilight zone the rock and roll twilight zone new episodes drop every wednesday at midnight 12 a.m eastern and it's part of the jericho network in association with westwood one just google it it's everywhere the rock and roll twilight zone uh, this hour, as I say, we're going to delve into the life and times of a most fascinating historical figure, a man at the center of the occult roots of the modern world. Dr. John Dee was Queen Elizabeth I's court advisor and astrologer. He was the foremost scientific genius of the 16th century, laying the foundation for modern science. He actively promoted mathematics and astronomy, as well as made advances in navigation and optics that helped elevate England to the foremost imperial power in the world. He was centuries ahead of his time. His theoretical work included the concept of light speed and prototypes for telescopes and solar panels. Dr. D was the original 007, his crown-given moniker. He even invented the idea of a British empire, envisioning fledgling America as the new Atlantis, with himself playing the part of Merlin and Elizabeth as Arthur. But, as Jason Louvre will explain, Dee was suppressed from mainstream history because he spent the second half of his career developing a method for contacting angels. After a brilliant ascent from star student at Cambridge to scientific advisor to the Queen, Dee, with the help of a disreputable criminal psychic named Edward Kelly, devoted ten years to communing with the angels and archangels of God. We'll uh, get into that right now. John D. and the Empire of the Angels, Enochian Magic and the Occult Roots of the Modern World. Jason, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Oh, I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on. My pleasure. Did I pronounce your last name correctly? Is it Louvre? Yes, Louvre, like the museum. Wonderful. How appropriate. So, this is a, a fascinating character, to be sure. First of all, he came from fairly modest beginnings, I understand. How did he end up in the court of Queen Elizabeth I? Well, yes, John D. of course, was perhaps the greatest scientific genius of the 16th century, and he 
did come from modest means. He was born into uh, a family that only had small connections to British court. He, his father was a gentleman sewer to the king and a textile merchant. Chandi was recognized at a very early age as being a mathematical genius. And that meant that the world of higher education really opened up to him, first in England and then in the Netherlands, where he continued his studies into mathematics and the occult, the really exciting topics of that day, and, and the early, early science. Uh, because of his advanced knowledge, knowledge that was more advanced than anyone in England at that time, uh, Dee became a hot commodity, first in Europe, where the kings and kings and emperors vied for his attention and made him great and very lucrative offers to come work for them uh, after he completed his education and became one of the most sought-after lecturers in Europe. But because Dee was a patriot and fully loyal to England, he decided to come back to England instead. And although he wasn't treated very well in England, that's how he found his way to becoming the chief scientific and astrological advisor to Queen Elizabeth I, in which capacity he was able to have a profound and tremendous impact on world history. I believe you made the comparison in your book to Dr. D being sort of the Rand Corporation of his day. Explain that. That's actually the NSA made that comparison in, in the 1960s ah. when they were analyzing Dee's case. Dee, of course, has been a subject of fascination to the intelligence community, both the NSA and the CIA, because he's one of the person, he's one of the people that created the world intelligence community, along with Sir Francis Walsingham. Dee founded what we now know as MI5 and MI6, in which his codename was 007. Uh, as Elizabeth called him. He was the original James Bond. Um, but That's fascinating. Yeah, they made that, made that comparison because Dee was a guy who knew everything and made it his job to know everything for the Queen um, and to uh, pursue advanced scientific knowledge, advanced knowledge of espionage and cryptography and also the occult because England at this time was engaged in a Cold War with Spain, and there was a war at hand to control the New World and then to control the entire world. And he was on the front lines of that war, and um, of course that's why that's why uh, he's been a, a, one, of, one of the many reasons why he's been a subject of fascination to historians as well as people like the NSA and the CIA. Right. Just back to his scientific developments for a moment. The idea that he was playing around with the concept of light speed. When did sort of our modern understanding of light speed begin? Did it begin with him, or was he really like centuries ahead of his time on this one? Oh, he was way ahead of his time. The modern conception of light speed starts in the 19th century and then and then uh, uh, increases with Einstein and, 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 and continuing on into the future. Uh, but Dee was obsessed with light. He was obsessed with the, the field of optics, and he was obsessed with light not only for the reason of making scientific calculations, but also navigational calculations. He was, of course, the person who coined the phrase British Empire and made it possible with his optical science for a British Empire to happen. And, of course, Dee uh, was interested in optics because he wanted to use light itself to tap into the spirit world and direct perception and the ability to see God and his angels. And for that reason, 
we don't get to hear about D very much in high school <laughs> because he's just a little bit right, too, right. too out there, even now. We'll definitely circle back to that because uh, there's much to chew on there. But back to the – you mentioned his work with optics really helped launch or create the British Empire. Explain. Give me an example. Well, this is how it happened. D really believed that England, which at this time was an impoverished developing nation, should be uh, ahead in the world race. And he coined the phrase British Empire – and believed that uh, England should have claim to the New World. But, of course, he said that the reason that he came up with this idea was that an angel told him and gave him the phrase British Empire in an occult scrying session. A scrying session is the use of various trance states to go into trance and speak to the unconscious or other planes of reality, depending on what you believe. Um, Sometimes using mirror, mirrors or, or reflect, reflecting pools? Uh, crystal pieces of crystal or crystal balls. That's right. Right. However, he also invented something called the paradoxical compass and made lots of tables of optical calculations, uh, astronomical calculations that allowed England to uh, leverage naval power. It was these insight that England could become a naval empire that really distinguished uh, well, that was the that was the killer idea. That was the that was the idea that allowed England to become a world superpower. Without that insight of these, that it could become a naval superpower, uh, England would have fallen far behind, and the world would not be what it is today. It's fascinating. This he's almost like Albert Einstein and Yuri Geller, sort of all rolled into one. And yet, as you say, sort of the two academic approaches to studying Doctor D. One solely focuses on his scientific and uh, sort of intelligence-gathering expertise. Won't delve into the occult because I guess they feel that would discredit themselves. And then the other focuses us almost exclusively on the occult without the scientific context. So yours is really kind of a meeting of the two. To your mind, is this the first time... Anyone has approached the history of Dr. John D. sort of with a balance of the two, the occult and the scientific, coming together? Well, no, it's not the first time because it's been done in the academic world a few times, particularly by Nicholas Cluley and then Deborah Harkness, who's now a best-selling fiction author. But I will say that I don't think it's been done in a in a popular book. It's, it's been done in academic writing, but it hasn't been done in a book that drew the whole story together for for everyone you know, to see. And for me, putting those two things back together, and particularly for me, having knowledge of a lot of the things that he was interested in, which is not usually the case with people who write about D, for me, it was like splitting the atom in reverse. It was putting those two sides of D back together, the scientific side and the magical side, um, allows the reader to get a real glimpse of what the world actually is and what the real history of the world is, not the history of the world that were sold the to get an understanding of, of how much world history is shaped by not just faith and belief but visions and people's contact with altered states of consciousness or greater human intelligences if you will now of course we're going out on a limb there and that's not something that any mainstream academic that's that statement i just made no mainstream academic would touch that with wow. a hundred foot pole <laughs> Indeed, Jason, we will go out on that limb and we'll delve into the magic behind Dr. John D. when the Conspiracy Show continues. Stay with us.
The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Welcome back. Jason Louv is with us. He's the author of John D. and the Empire of Angels, Enochian Magic and the Occult Roots of the Modern World. So how did this advisor to Queen Elizabeth I, how did he manage to hook up with this disreputable criminal psychic named Edward Kelly? Well, Dee is a guy who was fascinated with the occult for decades or his entire life, but he could never get it to work. And even into his early 50s, he had never been able to actually properly see anything or get a ritual to work, contact an angel. And it was a point of great um, uh, sorrow for him. He it, it drove him so crazy that he almost was he contemplated suicide at one point because he figured that if he wasn't able to see angels, then that must mean that he wasn't a very good person. Um, but that situation changed very quickly when he started working with scryers. Scryers are, are psychics, and they were fairly common in, in Elizabethan England. He auditioned a number of psychics to, to work with and finally uh, set upon a man named Edward Kelly, who was half these age. He was 25, uh, and, and, and yes, quite disreputable. He came, he brought with him a real a miasma of scandal and, and accusations of theft and necromancy and all kinds of devilish behavior. But he could do it. He had the real, real psychic talent. And uh, together, these two men formed a working partnership for about a decade where Dee would do magical rituals and pray at length, uh, asking God to manifest his angels and for the angels to bring them higher wisdom and understanding. And Kelly would fill in as the psychic and would go into a trance state and tell Dee what he was seeing, which Dee would then write down. And working in that way over the course of many years, they were able to put together over a thousand pages of written material of some of the most profound, shocking, compelling, and, and quite frankly, convincing records of contact with extra-dimensional beings that uh, have ever been written in human history. What, to your mind, makes them most compelling and convincing that they were, in fact, in communication with angels? Well, just to unpack that, when we say in communication with angels, I mean, that right there is a tricky topic because we don't really know what that means. And even if it's just they're talking to their unconscious or, or they're talking to some part of the human mind that is not normally accessible by the average individual, you know, we can debate what was actually going on, but it's hard to say, it's hard to read that stuff and say that something wasn't happening. And the reason that it's so convincing is because, first of all, the language is so beautiful and, and coming from somebody with really no, no education. I mean, I mean, and the records are full of um, what looks like math equations or just huge amounts of mathematical information. It's not what you get with normal channeling where the average psychic or channeler will deliver very flattering messages that make them sound very good or or make the person that they're channeling that message for sound very good. There's none of that in Dee and Kelly. What, what they're getting was schematics. It was schematics to build something schematics to build a device to further contact angels. It was uh, the Enochian language itself, which is the full language that they were told that angels speak with and that mankind spoke from before the fall from the Garden of Eden. And that's a full language that linguists have analyzed, including in the 1970s, 
very closely analyzed it and found many characteristics of an actual language that were inexplicable. Now, how somebody could you now how somebody can just channel a new language with uh, linguistic coherence and hints of grammar and syntax just off the top of their head is is beyond me. You know, if you can answer that, you know, <laughs> I'm all ears. Right. Again, the the language of the angels and supposedly the language spoken by Adam and Eve in the garden prior to the fall of humanity. How did they settle upon the name Enochian? As in Enoch, part of the Apocrypha. It's not part of the Old Testament, but it's often referred to. Is it the same, one and the same, the book of Enoch? It's actually not, and this is a, a really critically important point, in that Dean Kelly only referred to the language as angelic, or at one point they called it the Adamic uh, language. Uh, Enochian is a phrase that was tacked onto their sessions about one or two hundred years later by later historians and magicians who were looking at their work. And at that time, Enochian simply meant really old, as in antediluvian, before the flood. Ah. So it was a linguistic flourish that's confused people for, for centuries since. What that means, of course, is that the quote-unquote Enochian sessions don't have anything to do at all with the apocry- apocryphal book of Enoch outside of a few uh, tangential c- connections. So this is, a, this is a point that often confuses people who are new to the subject. It would be better to just call it angelic. Right. Okay. And what was sort of the underlying message from the angelic realm to Dee and Kelly? Were they given sort of instructions or marching orders? What did the angels want from Dee and what was Dee asking of the angels? Well, Dee was asking for wisdom and understanding and higher scientific knowledge. But the message that came back was that humanity was fallen the angels were furious with the state of Europe and the state of how far people had fallen from the truth, particularly due to the Protestant Reformation. They, they weren't particularly fond of either the Protestants or the Catholics, but most of all that they were furious that uh, people were so fallen into sin and degradation and that the church itself was splitting. The message of the angels was very simple. It was that the end of the world is at hand and that Dee and Kelly were to first channel the Enochian magical system so that individuals could use it to make their own contact with the angelic realms and repair their fallen nature. They were then to go to Rudolph II, the Holy Roman Emperor, and convert him to the cause, um, and also use Elizabeth as uh, what they really wanted was the, a new religion and a new world order. They wanted there to be one terrestrial empire underneath Elizabeth and one terrestrial religion that would unite all warring factions of religion, including Protestantism, Catholicism, Judaism, Paganism, and even Islam, that would be ministered to by the angels. Their message, of course, was that this was apocalyptic. We are in the process of the apocalypse, but Dean Kelly and many, many people since then have made the error of assuming that this was meant to be a literal date. There is no literal date for the apocalypse. The apocalypse is an ongoing process. It it manifests over the course of hundreds of years and on a very long and extended timeline that is much, uh, much, much longer than a human lifespan. So we don't, we only get to see our little piece of it. And this is essentially what the angel said. It's the, it's the end of the world. Humanity must repent. And we're here to give them a direct means to do that in the form of Enochian magic. So if the disease was the fall of humanity and his sinful state, and the cure was the second coming vis-a-vis the apocalypse, 
did Dr. D believe that it was his role to hasten the second coming by bringing about an apocalypse? Yes, he did, although I'm not sure he fully understood what that actually meant. Uh, you know, a lot has happened since the 1600s that's helped elucidate a lot of this. But this was the message of the angels. The angels were hastening the apocalypse and the second coming. But what is the apocalypse? You know, the, the apocalypse in Greek means unveiling. It's the, the uncovering of the true nature of consciousness. And what is the second coming? You know, the second coming and coming is the awakening of the Christ consciousness or whatever you want to call it in all of us. You know, it's always the mistake that people make when they make these things too literal, and it's a literal event. But just because something is not literal, as in it's like an action movie that happens, uh, doesn't mean it's real, not real. It doesn't mean it's not real. It's, it's even more real. You know, it's, it's the, the apocalypse and the second coming or something that happened every moment, every waking and sleeping moment of our lives in, in every human-hearted soul. Well, here we have Dr. D in the center of the court of... Queen Elizabeth I, who is the head of the new Church of England, I can't imagine, you know, that this would go over well with, you know, the church leaders, someone in the center of the court for taking in these occult practices, gazing into crystal balls and so forth. I'm guessing this was all done surreptitiously. To some extent, but Elizabeth was very aware of it. The court was aware uh-huh. of it. And you have to remember that at this time, Everyone in Elizabethan England was engaged in magic in some way or, or another, including people in court. And uh, Dee, had, of course, had been paid by the Secretary of State to go look for uh, manuals of demonic conjuration and that type of thing in Europe to use in the war effort and to use in the espionage effort. And frankly, that is not something that's ever changed. It's just something that gets swept under the carpet and, and removed from the light of day and the, the mass media. And that's, of course, why, why these things are called occults, because they're hidden. I don't mean this in a conspiratorial sense, but it's, it's just a matter of historical record that heads of state have been in, and people of power have been involved in this type of thing since the beginning of history, even up to our modern day, even up to a very clear modern example just a few years ago the head of um, the South Korean government had to step down in a scandal in which it was revealed that she was receiving most of her guidance on running the government from a council of seven shamans who were kind of a secret society that were running things from behind the scenes. So it's not like this stuff is just the the province of fiction and conspiracy literature. It just happens to be part of how the world works, which is one of the, the things that I've tried to really cast some light on with this book, because I think that people deserve to, we people deserve an apocalypse <laughs> in the sense <laughs> of unveiling. People deserve to have the veils pulled back and see what's on the other end of their fork. Right. So to what extent were Dee's communications with the angelic realm and his spirit diaries, to what extent did that inform Queen Elizabeth I's, let's say, her foreign policy? Well, the major way in which it informed foreign policy was, I mean, Dee wrote a five-volume set of information on how to build the British Empire, which is called the General and Rare Memorials, and he presented that information to court, and that became the blueprint uh, from which the British Empire was built, not by Dee, but by, by, but by Sir Walter Raleigh and, and others. Um, but that was before he, that was before the angelic scrying really happened, so... But there were a lot of overlaps. There was a tremendous amount of interest in alchemy, not just from Elizabeth, but in all, all the European monarchs. 
uh, who were, uh, uh, you know, very much competing to retain uh, the, and even more so, Edward Kelly to produce gold for them uh, because Edward Kelly had convinced them that he could do it, although he couldn't because no one had, as far as we know, ever figured out how to do it. But there was an occult arms race, and this is one of the reasons why, you know, these things have to be brought back together. They can't be separated out and just say over here, well, that's the, the science part, that's the empire part, that's the safe and sanitized version, and then over here we're just going to put the occult part. Well, that's not how history works. You know, it's all, it's, that's not how human life works. You know, human life is a jumble of all kinds of strange things, and history is no different. I love that phrase you just uh, laid on us, an occult arms race. Explain. What do you mean by that? Well, the biggest one was all of the kingdoms and, and empires in Europe at this time were in a dead heat arms race to solve the riddle of alchemy because whoever could figure out how to produce gold on demand first, of course, would have the economic advantage over all the other countries. You know, this never happened. But ironically, the who was an alchemist in the true sense, in that he understood that alchemy was a metaphor of the perfection of the human soul. Uh, Dee provided the true secret of riches to uh, England, which was colonizing the New World. But beyond just that, there were sorcerers and magicians tapped and employed by uh, many different groups at this time. Of course, he with England, but then in France, they had Nostra on the Catholic side, there was Nostradamus. And then there were there were uh, many, many Catholic conjurers or sorcerers that were employed in the Catholic efforts to undermine the new Protestant kingdom of England. And that got real down and dirty. It wasn't just flights of fancy and, and, and high philosophy and academia. I mean, it was people making voodoo dolls, people cursing each other. People using oh, I really love it. nasty forms of magic to really... Jason, let me just other. jump in here. Pardon my interruption. We'll take a quick time out. We'll come back and we'll uh, drill down a little bit on this occultic arms race. Jason Louvre, John D. and the Empire of Angels right here on The Conspiracy Show. It is time to redefine reality. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. I'll get back to my conversation with Jason Louvre, author of John D. and the Empire of Angels, Enochian Magic and the Occult Roots of the modern world in just a moment speaking about occult i want to tell you about another event i'm involved in coming later this summer it's called occulticon occulticon and uh, it's taking place it's a three-day event you can camp overnight it's up in beautiful holstein ontario so if you know the greater toronto area just uh, think about traveling north on highway 10 sort of north of brampton and uh, up on an escarpment, a beautiful campground called Mythwoods, and it's uh, an event grounds and camping grounds, and a culticon will be held there over three days with all sorts of guest speakers and vendors and so forth, and I will be speaking there on uh, the 14th of July, which is a Saturday. And I'll be speaking under the big lecture tent at 1 o'clock, and then at 3 o'clock, I'll be part of a roundtable discussion on the paranormal. Again, that's Occulticon. And for more information and tickets, you can go to occulticon.ca, occulticon.ca. Or uh, you can also go to the live events page at my website, strangeplanet.ca, live events page at strangeplanet.ca. 
Ca. All right, back to uh, Jason Louvre and John D. and the Empire of Angels. We were talking about this occult arms race across Europe. I sort of interrupted you. You were talking about um, a Catholic. Did you describe them as Catholic sorcerers and so forth? I mean, were they engaged <laughs> in almost? Yeah, yeah that is a very. <laughs> it's not something you hear very often. Catholic sorcerers. Were they involved in? I mean, we're all familiar now with the military's involvement in these remote viewing experiments. And so did they have sort of something like that going on in the 16th century, sort of psychic spies? Yeah, I mean, frankly, that's what Dee and Kelly were. And I love that you bring that up because it's really not any different now than if you look at Operation Stargate and projects like you're referencing in in the 20th century. Um, Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, governments are in the business of power. That's what they're about and maintaining power and, and they will seek any advantage whatsoever to do so. So I don't think it's surprising at all that uh, at certain points of history and on in an ongoing sense, you know, everyone has looked to magic or the occult as a way to do that. Uh, now how successful it's been is, is, you know, that's another story, but, uh, you know, I think it would be more shocking to, it would be more shocking if they hadn't than if they had, frankly. I want to go back to the Enochian language because I'm, I'm wondering if there is corroborating evidence. Was there contemporaneous examples of the Enochian language that was being channeled from another source so that that would tend to verify that this was actually happening, it was real? Do we have other people that were supposedly claiming they were downloading the same Enochian language? Actually, I'm so glad you asked that because, yes, we do. And and that's something that uh, it came up for me in the research uh, of the book. That I discovered that I've never seen any other writers talk about, including the academic writers who've analyzed the, um, a really um, shocking uh, example of that is Hildegard, uh, Hildegard of Bingen, who's a, a very, very famous Catholic um, uh, saint, and or I'm not, I'm not quite sure Myth, if she's a saint. Uh, she might she myst- may be certainly a, saint, a mystic. But, uh, a mystic, yes. Yeah, a, a Catholic mystic who's in the Catholic holy orders and is very very famous. Um, she channeled a language that she called the lingua ignotia, uh, which looks and sounds exactly like, or not exactly, but very very close to the Enochian language. And this was about 200 years before Dean Kelly. Now, it would be easy to say, well, then, you know, maybe he drew inspiration from that. But as far as I know, he was not aware of it. He, you know, this information was kept fairly is hidden and secret within the Catholic holy orders and was not available to the public. So um, so that for me, discovering that was and, and realizing that nobody had ever written about that. Uh, you know, you, you think that people would have pounced on that as proof that there was some validity to this but to, to my knowledge nobody had ever clued into that fact that's something that i bring up in the book and when you when you discover that type of thing you can't help but feel shivers run up your back i'm getting them now that is absolutely fascinating i mean that is pretty close to contemporaneous you know a couple hundred years before and as you say he had no knowledge as far as you can tell and yet the two languages are eerily similar now what method do we know was hildegard using uh, to, to tap into this angelic language well she was a meditator in the Christian tradition, the quietest tradition, and lived in a cloistered holy order, so spent long, long periods of time 
by herself in silent retreats and in prayer for long periods of time. And in anyone who's ever done anything like that in a sincere way, particularly in an extended way for long periods of time, knows that it gets you into very, very profound altered states of consciousness. Uh, sure, like quickly. almost like sensory deprivation, right? We'll take another time out. This was a very short segment. We'll finish with uh, Jason Louv, John D. and the Empire of Angels, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. There is nothing concealed that won't be revealed. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Well, without question, the most fascinating figure from the Elizabethan era, Dr. John D. And uh, Jason Louvre is with us for a few moments yet. John D. and the Empire of Angels, Enochian Magic and the Occult Roots of the Modern World. I want to talk about his angelic magic. Just describe sort of what that entails, angelic magic. Well, it's an ongoing process that involves a lot of prayer and a lot of change and evolution of the person engaging in the process. Uh, angelic magic is the ongoing process of somebody changing their nervous system to be able to capacitate that type of input from higher reality and then more or less acting as a conduit for it. So almost kind of a metaphorical alchemy. Yes, absolutely. I mean, true alchemy, of course, is not about turning lead into gold at all, uh, although there are parts of it that are related to that. Uh, true alchemy is the process of taking a standard, uh, unawakened, uh, sleeping human being and turning them into an enlightened sage. So it's very similar to the process of, for instance, in the Eastern traditions of uh, taking somebody through a long process of meditation over many, many years and decades and into an enlightened sage or an enlightened Buddha. You know, magic is really the Western culture's version of, um, you know, what we see in Eastern enlightenment traditions. It's, it's our tradition for achieving enlightenment. You know, in, in the East they have yoga and Buddhism. Here we have magic. Now, were Dee and Kelly able to make prophecies in the same way that Nostradamus did? For example, were they able to foretell the death of Queen Elizabeth I or the coming of the Spanish Armada? They did indeed. There were many predictions that were made by the angels that did come true, although there were lots that did not. And it's the same with Nostradamus, of course. And this touches on... You know, as I mentioned earlier, when we engage with the world of the occult and the spiritual, we have to look at them almost like an artist would. It's much more about the subtle metaphor and meaning and how meaning is constructed in somebody's life than it is about making specific predictions and that type of thing. Uh, it's very much about, um, you know, what it means to be alive rather than saying this event will happen on this and this and such and such date. But specifically with the Armada. Of course, very famous, you know, the um, the storm that came and, and I mean, was that seen? Did the destruction of the Spanish Armada, was D sort of given credit for that or how was that perceived the way that played out? He was and it's, it's an amazing story. So, of course, the Spanish Armada in 1588 was when Spain sent all of their entire naval capabilities to wipe England off the face of the earth. It's like Elizabethan Star Wars. Like the, here comes the empire, like the star destroyers. So they're coming in over the over the waves towards England, and D goes out. And of course, the angels. It was 1588. The angels had predicted the end of the world for 88, although they weren't clear about what that meant. 
Uh, so people thought that this was the end. It was the end, you know, certainly it was going to be the end for England. And Dee went out into the harbor and looked out across the bay and made some quick calculations and realized that the way the weather was going meant that um, a storm was going to come up very, very soon, and it probably was going to be so severe of a storm that it would wipe out the Spanish Armada all on its own. So he quickly turned to um, the people in charge and said of the, of the fleet and said, hold back the English ships. Do not go out into the harbor to meet the Spanish Armada. Do not engage. Hold back the ships. And they thought he was crazy because they said, well, no, 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 the ships are going to come in and, and kill all of us. We have to go out and meet them, or they'll be right here and they'll be able to uh, uh, get to land, and they'll be able to go through. Uh, they'll be able to go through London, killing everyone. And so, he said, "No, no, no, just wait, just wait." So they did wait, and the storm clouds did come in, and the storms wiped out the entire Spanish Armada. And then the English fleet just went out to mop up what was left. And it was one of the most resounding military defeats in world history. And it was that event that spelled the end of Spain's advantage and the build-up to the Age of Empires. They would never recover from that defeat, and because of that reason, England was able to colonize much, much more of the New World than Spain did. And, uh, of course, Dee was credited with this. Uh, people said it was because God was on England's side. It must have been the great magic of Dr. Dee, and then Dee had conjured angels to or demons to make this happen, but it had just been a few scientific uh, observations. They must have likened him onto a god after that prediction, though. It must have certainly elevated his status, I'll bet. They were pretty impressed, although they simply just said that it meant that it was proof that God was on England's side. You know, I think that was what was mostly on people's mind. And also that it proved to them that because it, it was like a message to them, that not just England, but the Protestant side of the religious war. You know, it seemed to be such a decisive victory that it seemed to be an act of God. We just have a few moments here for about four or five minutes, but how did John Dee, his work with angelic magic, inform sort of the Hermetic Orders, the Golden Dawn, later Aleister Crowley? Well, the Enochian magic that Dee transmitted really is the core of all of the occult movements that have come since. Rosicrucianism, uh, perhaps Freemasonry, um, and certainly the Golden Dawn and Thelema and things like that. It, it certainly had an influence, and Dee's work certainly had an influence on these things. Of course, these things are, are very uh, uh, different in their own right also, so it's not as simple as to say that it's all a branch of Enochian magic, but I, you can argue quite clearly that Enochian is at the core of certainly things like the Golden Dawn, certainly things like uh, Crowley's Thelema, and uh, therefore that it really is the what's been driving the show forward in terms of the, the occult revivals that have swept through uh, Western culture in the last, uh, you know, in the last few decades and in the last few centuries. But, but surely, I mean, Crowley had little time for, for Christianity. Uh, well, actually, he he did. He was a, Crowley was a diehard Christian to the end. He was just... Uh, you know, he was a, he was an anti-Christian, <laughs> but he never got over his Christian conditioning. So he was, you know, he was just uh, acting out against Christianity his entire life. I think. Right. So, is there anything in D or Kelly's angelic magic that involved, for example, uh, summoning the conjuring of angelic entities or demons and binding them, which is certainly something that Crowley dabbled in. 
Well, that what you just described is really core to a lot of traditional magical technology, uh, certainly before and after D. But D is quite different in that D's magic, quote unquote, magical system had a lot more to do with mysticism and, and Christian mysticism and simple prayer. There wasn't a whole lot of structure to it, although a lot of structure did come later. Um, and certainly demons appeared in the angelic sessions, but they only appeared so that the angels could exercise them. And that was part of the purification process of Dee and Kelly, where you might argue they were shown their base in impure aspects and the, the ways in which they were under uh, the influence of less than sterling forces. And then, as, as, as most human beings are, you know, we're all a mixed bag. And uh, and then the angels were, you know, a lot of long sessions, long parts of the angelic sessions are the angels uh, driving out the demons from Dee and Kelly <laughs> and trying to purify right. them. I'm just taking kind of a flyer on this one, but did Dr. D form the basis for any of Shakespeare's characters? I mean, do we see D sort of popping up in any of Shakespeare's plays? He did. In fact, Prospero in The Tempest is directly based on John D, to our knowledge. Um, and the Tempest itself was, many have alleged, was written in collaboration between Dee and Shakespeare and other people who were involved in an effort to propagandize for the, colon, the colonization of the New World. If you read the Tempest in a certain light, you can very clearly see it was aimed at the British public to get them on board the idea of colonizing the New, the new World and planning that idea in people's imagination. Of course, Dee was very interested in this and very easily could have worked with Shakespeare or, or whatever person or group of people Shakespeare actually was to propagandize this. And, and of course, we see the figure of Prospero is B. Fascinating. I was just taking a, a bit of a flyer on that. By the way, I don't know if this is within your sort of your purview, but do you believe that Shakespeare was, in fact, the 17th Earl of Oxford? Uh, it is not within my purview, although I will say that I recently did. Uh, I have a podcast called Ultra Culture with Jason Louv. You can get it on iTunes and Stitcher and, and Google Play and all that. Uh, and I recently did an interview with my friend Alan Green, who specializes in the Shakespeare mystery and the overlaps of Shakespeare and John Dee. And we had a, a, about a 90-minute conversation just about that. And uh, so that's outside of my, my purview, but uh, I know people who know the answer. All right. I should mention your some of your other books, Generation Hex, Ultra Culture, and uh, the Psychic Bible. The psych is it Psychic Bible? Yeah, the Psychic Bible. Bible. Yeah. Right. And uh, of course, you run the high traffic site ultraculture.org, which you mentioned. Uh, you teach courses on magic and spirituality at magic.me, and. Um, uh, you've uh, written for many popular websites, including Boing Boing, Vice News, Motherboard, Esquire Online. And uh, a great delight meeting you, uh, Jason. Thank you for hanging out with us. Thank you so much for having me on. John D. and the Empire of Angels. All right. My thanks to Ian Robertson, Ryan White, Albert Vinzel. I'll be back next week uh, with a special tribute to the late Nils Hamron. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There is nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.